Hello, and welcome to Christmas Book Review with me, Carrie Mercer. Well, I missed you guys. Where have you been? What have you been doing? I've really been missing doing this podcast. I missed another month again because of all the craziness. Here in Minneapolis, where I live, we've had riots the last week or so on top of the COVID-19. And I know a lot of other cities around the country are also having riots. So it's pretty scary. Um, So reading Christmas books is definitely a good break from all of the craziness that is going on. So I hope you are finding some way to find comfort right now, maybe reading a Christmas book. So anyway, today I've got four books to tell you about, and they are Meg and Joe, a contemporary novel, Marley's Ghost, a sort of historical novel, Miss Marley, another historical novel, and Lyle at Christmas, a kid's picture book. So let's start with Meg and Joe. As I said, it's a contemporary novel. It's by Virginia Contra and published in 2019 by Berkeley, a division of Penguin Random House. So I listened to the audiobook of this one, and the way this book is structured is that alternating chapters are told in the voices of Meg and Joe. And for the audiobook, there were two alternating readers who I want to mention, Carissa Vicar and Shannon McManus. And I thought they did a great job. And in case you aren't sure, yes, this is Meg and Joe March of Little Women, reimagined this time as adult women in their early 30s or thereabouts. Joe is still a writer, and she's living in New York in a tiny, tiny apartment but hasn't written that great American novel she's been dreaming of writing since she was a kid. She was working for a newspaper, but was laid off and has been working at a very fancy restaurant as a sous chef for a very famous chef. And unbeknownst to the staff, she's writing a food blog. Meg is still living in Bunyan, North Carolina, where she's married with two kids. Her husband used to be a high school coach and really loved doing that and really was connecting with the kids. But once they started having children, he felt like he had to get a better paying job to support the family. And now he works for Lori selling luxury cars. Lori, remember, was their neighbor, the March's neighbor in the original Little Women. So um, Meg's husband doesn't really like his job. And that's causing some friction in their marriage, as you might imagine. This actually felt really realistic, being an adult and doing what's needed for your family, but also needing something for yourself that you love. Meg is having the familiar struggle of loving being a mom, but needing to do something adult as well. Meg and Joe's father is absent much of the time, as he was in the original novel, only now that they're grown up, they see a much more complicated dynamic in their parents' relationship, which I thought was really interesting and and very realistic. In this book, he's a retired army chaplain who's always there for everyone else's family, but increasingly unavailable for his daughter's 
and his wife, who's just been diagnosed with cancer. Amy and Beth are both here, too, and we get to learn about their careers and passions through the eyes of their sisters. I really enjoyed this contemporary update of Little Women. They all have busy lives in the modern world, but when Marmy gets cancer right before the holidays, they all come to help and are together again. Lori but he's really unlikable. He's very old-fashioned and still in love with Joe, and although he's wonderful in the way that he shows up to help the March family, even when they don't feel like they can ask for help, he's also almost a stalker the way he pursues Joe, trying to tell her he knows best for her and she should just give in and marry him and stop all this nonsense of living in a hovel in New York City to pursue her writing. So that's super annoying. I don't like him at all. <laughs> uh, the novel does center around the holidays, and food plays a big part, especially with Joe being a food blogger slash restaurant critic. It turns out she's not just interested in writing about food, but in cooking it as well. And there's some really luscious descriptions of making food for her family, her lover, and for herself. And I really enjoyed how she learns about herself as she writes about food. Jo unexpectedly falls for her boss, which is great, but, but, there is a big but. <laughs> but she feels guilty for not telling him that she writes a food blog, especially after she hears him excoriate a fellow food blogger's post one day. This secret is the way the book feels old-fashioned, because we, the reader, know that there's this big secret, and we're just waiting for that accidental moment when it's revealed in exactly the wrong way, and then we have to wait to see how they will come to the brink of destruction only to be saved by love in the end. Contra is a romance writer, and she has that knack of making you feel safe in her story, like nothing terrible is going to happen, or at least nothing so terrible that her characters can't recover from it with their spirits intact. It's a nice feeling, especially what with the global pandemic and rioting that we're living through right now. Overall, I found this to be a really enjoyable story with lots of Christmas spirit. So I'm giving it an 8 out of 10. Okay, next we have Marley's Ghost by Mark Hazard Osmond, published in 2000 by Twelfth Night Press. Well, here's another Marley book. I suppose because the tiny bit we know of Jacob Marley from A Christmas Carol those few lines about him being a good friend to Ebenezer are just so intriguing that many writers find it irresistible to explore Marley some more. So, to begin with, Marley isn't quite dead, but he's hallucinating on his deathbed. And then we go back in time, and Marley isn't even Marley. Jacob Marley is born Jake Turner, and he has a twin brother, Ezra, who is most definitely on the spectrum, as we say nowadays. Ezra is a sweet child, but at nine years old, he still only talks in snatched phrases, repeating selected words he overhears. 
Jake is the only one who can really communicate with Ezra. Ezra has a genius for music, while Jake has a gift for numbers. Osmond describes it beautifully. Quote, Ezra appeared as a simpleton. His hands constantly fluttered before him like struggling birds on the end of strings, unquote. He can perform music beautifully, but otherwise, even his parents think him an idiot. Because, of course, in Dickens' time, we didn't really know about autism. The two boys communicate through a complicated series of drawn symbols they've made up, and no one else but Jake believes that Ezra can understand what's going on around him. Quote, no one could speak the secret language he and Ezra shared, a secret language not only of twins, but of twin geniuses. Their language resided in the ethereal realms of frequencies, vibrations, musical intervals, and arithmetic ratios, unquote. Everything, quote, could be expressed in their exchange of numbers and music, and expressed far more precisely and profoundly than conventional language allowed, unquote. So Jake can interact with others in a conventional manner, but he will always feel closest to Ezra. The story jumps around in time a bit as we start with a prologue where Jacob is on his deathbed. Then we jump back to the boys at 13 years old, working underground 10 hours a day in a horrible mine. Then we jump back even further to the boys at nine, having their last happy Christmas with their parents. This is a long story, over 300 pages, and it took me a while to finish it. It's dense and it's sad because you know, of course, it's just going to get worse and worse for poor Jake. So it's kind of a hard read. He starts out with a happy childhood, loving parents, and a great talent. His parents want to send him to a good school so that he can use his talent, and his father ends up in debt to send him to a school that's at the college level, and it's a bad debt. He can't repay it, and this leads the family to ruin. There's an interesting contrast between the old world and the new in the beliefs of Jake's parents. His father tells the boys quote-unquote pagan tales of the frost giants and Bridget, the goddess of spring and light. But his mother scolds him for telling the boys that the Christmas tree is a reminder of Bridget's power to make things grow. Quote, the lights, the songs, all of it is really meant to awaken Bridget from her cold slumber, unquote. The mother corrects the father to teach the boys, quote, the tree is a symbol of the everlasting life we shall inherit because Christ was born this night, unquote. Looking back on it, this was an interesting read and would be great in an academic setting to really pull apart, maybe even have for a book club reading. But this much darkness felt lonely to read by myself. There's a lot of historically accurate stuff about children working in mines and trying to survive in the awful workhouses in London. So for me, it was just too dark. If you don't mind that kind of thing and are more interested in historical fiction, then you might really enjoy this. It does have Christmas spirit, and there are hopeful parts. 
So overall, I'm giving it a 7 out of 10 on the Christmas spirit scale. Next is Miss Marley, a novel written by Vanessa Le Fay, published in 2018 by HQ, an imprint of HarperCollins. This is a sweet little novel, just over 150 pages, and another story about Marley, but I really enjoyed this one much more than Marley's Ghost. It's much lighter in tone, and although some awful things happen, it doesn't drag you down deep into them. The story is told to us by Clara Bell Marley, Jacob's little sister, and that has a lot to do with why the tone is so much lighter. And when I say light, I don't mean insubstantial, but rather full of light instead of darkness. Jacob Marley didn't have a little sister in the original Christmas Carol story, at least as far as we know, but I think adding her is a great way to tell his story from a little distance. So the story begins in winter, near Christmas, with Clara looking in the window of a toy shop at a dollhouse that looks very much like her life used to look like, quote, in the before time, unquote. That is, before both parents died and a heartless uncle sold their house and left them at the workhouse to die. Jacob got them out of the workhouse, and now they are living on the streets of London, eating scraps the butcher throws out his back door once a week. One evening, a wealthy man is knifed in the alley where Jacob and Clara are quote-unquote living. Clara wants to call for help, but Jacob wants money for their trouble. And after the man gestures to the location of his purse, Jacob takes it and they leave the man to die. Clara protests, but Jacob insists it's too late. And anyway, quote, he'd have stepped over our dead bodies to get to his carriage, unquote. And although he's probably right, it's the principle of the thing, and this incident will haunt both of them for the rest of their lives. The money in the purse is enough to get them a place to stay so that they can get work, and so begins their slow climb back into a better life. A major part of that climb is Jake and Clara becoming money lenders. They start very small but grow and grow over the years, and Jake is very strict about payments being on time. They hire thugs to enforce the rules, and Clara doesn't like this. Jake tells Clara not to get involved in people's lives who they are lending money to, but she can't help it. She cares about people. Don't make it personal, Jake warns her. It's just business. What Clara slowly realizes is how Jake has twisted the need for money into a never-ending quest for more. What she longs for is the security and love of a family, being part of a family again. But what Jake wants is so much money that he will never have to worry again about being in debt and going to debtor's prison. Only it's never enough. His original goal was to, quote, have a good life again, and I will always keep you safe, unquote. He would tell this to Clara. But long after he has enough money to keep them both safe several lifetimes over, he is still scrimping and saving and living in a small spare room. So when Clara falls in love with someone, 
Jake isn't happy. The man, John, has his own business and is going to expand, only he needs a loan. By this time, Jake is in business with Scrooge, and they are very strict with their loans. Clara thinks Jake will be helpful and advise John. Well, no. Of course, there's going to be a disaster, and it's so heartbreaking. Those poor Marleys, they're doomed. <laughs> the only thing I felt was off about this book was the illustrations. There are a few illustrations in the book, like before each of the three sections it's divided into, and maybe the publisher was going for the feel of an old book, like A Christmas Carol that had illustrations, but these just feel like they don't belong here. I think it's because the style is kind of childlike instead of adult, and it kind of gave me the expectation that it was going to be a juvenile story, and it's definitely not. Other than that, it's a great story and has a lot of Christmas spirit, and was it was really a joy to read. I might even reread this one. I give it a 9 out of 10 on the Christmas spirit scale. Okay, and the last book I want to tell you about is Lyle at Christmas, a children's picture book written and illustrated by Bernard Weber, published in 1998 by Houghton Mifflin. Do you know Lyle the Crocodile? This is his eighth book. His first book was almost 60 years ago, so I read Lyle when I was a kid. He's a really nice crocodile who lives with the Prim family on East 88th Street in New York City. And you know it's New York City because the first illustration in the book is Lyle skating with the Prims at Rockefeller Center Plaza with the big tree. So this particular Lyle story is a little thin, it's the traditional theme of the main character having to save Christmas. So the way Christmas gets messed up in this story is that Loretta, Lyle's best friend, has run away. Loretta is a cat who lives two houses away with Mr. Grumps. Maybe you can guess why Loretta ran away? Yes, it is Mr. Grumps. He's being a bit scroogey. Loretta had had it with quote, down in the dumps, Mr. Grumps, unquote. Everyone had tried to cheer him up. Lyle did tricks on roller skates and a unicycle, and Mr. Prim told dad jokes. Lyle's mother, Nurse Felicity, even checked over Mr. Grumps and concluded there was nothing wrong with his health. But Mr. Grumps was still not feeling the Christmas spirit, and Loretta just got plain sick of it and took off. Well, this made Mr. Grumps terribly upset, because he loves Loretta very much. Loretta is probably his best friend. So all of his friends, including the Prims, set out to search for Loretta. Through a very silly string of events and Lyle's smart thinking, Lyle manages to find Loretta, and all is well again. Mr. Grumps says goodbye to the holiday blahs, and they all have a lovely Christmas dinner together. So, even though I said the story is kind of thin, I still love it. I love Lyle, because he is the most lovable crocodile there ever was. Lyle doesn't speak, and he's very gentle, like a small child. Only it's funny because he's a big crocodile. Oh, and I like his no-nonsense mother, Nurse Felicity, who is always wearing her nurse whites with their special nurse hat. 
I love Bernard Weber's drawing style with his spidery lines. And along the way, there is an old lady fainting, a crocodile dancing, false arrest of a crocodile, a very silly actor named Hector P. Valenti, and even a budding romance at Christmas time. So overall, this was a really fun Lyle story, even though, as I said, it's a little thin in the plot department, but it's very silly. And I think kids will love it, especially fans of Lyle. Overall, I'm giving this one an 8 out of 10. So that's about it for all the books today. And I just want to thank everyone for listening. As always, I'll have links in the show notes to the books I reviewed. And those are links to the books for sale at thriftbooks.com, not Amazon. Neither of them pay me, but I just believe in getting used books when you can. And I really like thrift books. I'll also have links to my email and my Instagram. And for Instagram, I'll have pictures of Lyle and probably a couple pictures from the Miss Marley book as well. If you'd like to support the show, you can click the link in the show notes that goes to my Patreon. And new this month, if you'd like to just give me a couple bucks on Ko-Fi or coffee, I don't know how you say it, but I did set it up this month, so I will have a link in the show notes to that as well. Oh yes, and my giveaway of Marley, I did not forget. I do have a winner for that, and that is John Bokenfuso. I hope I didn't slaughter your name too much. But he wrote and said he is a new subscriber and wanted to be entered in the drawing, and he won. (laughs) So thank you for being a new subscriber, John, and I hope you'll continue to enjoy the podcast. And maybe tell some friends about it. Um, As you probably hear in every podcast you listen to, telling friends is probably the best way to get more listeners for the podcast. That and, of course, leaving a review. If you do leave a review for me somewhere, be sure to email me and let me know. And I will send you a Christmas book review postcard. And my email is christmasbookreview at gmail.com. And I'll have that in the show notes as well. If you want to recommend a book or you're an author and you'd like me to review your book, please send me an email. I do take suggestions. Until next time, happy reading.